welcome to episode three of the Banking Litigation Podcast. As our regular listeners will know, we aim to bring you bite-sized updates on key judgments and regulatory developments in the sector. If you're joining us for the first time, firstly, welcome, you've made the right decision. And secondly, do remember to subscribe for future episodes, and you can do that on all the usual platforms. I am David Barr, and I'm joined, as ever, by our Banking Litigation PSL, Kerry Morgan, uh, Kerry, there seems to be a bit of anticipation around the office as to how I'm going to introduce you each month. But, but this month, I'm going to elevate you to guru status. So you well, are thank you. Thank you, guru. And alongside Kerry, we have Ajay Mahaltra, Senior Associate here in Disputes. Uh, and I don't know what's next after a guru, but you're it, Ajay. So uh, thanks for joining us today. Um, thanks, and <laughs> you're absolutely going to kick us off. Um, Ajay, aren't you with the... Uh, First couple of cases, we've got um, some cases looking at duties owed in a financial services context. Uh, firstly, we have a, a court of appeal judgment looking at fiduciary duties and secret commissions, or perhaps not so secret commissions, as you're going to explain. Um, but can you tell us more, Andy? Yes, of course. So this is quite an interesting one because it's new law on the issue of secret commissions from the court of appeal. And it's in a case called Medstead Associates and Canaccord. Um and in the underlying facts, what you had was an arrangement where a broker agreed to introduce potential investors to an investment firm. Part of that agreement was that the broker would be paid a percentage of the commission that the investment firm got from the investors. And the investors knew that the broker was getting a commission, although they didn't know the precise amount. Predictably, what happened in this case was that the investment firm circumvented the broker or tried to and went straight to the investors directly. Um, and that breached an express term of the introducing agreement. The broker brought an action against the investment firm. It went to the court, the high court, and the high court decided that there clearly had been a breach of the agreement. However, the high court only awarded nominal damages to the broker. And that's because the high court found that the broker was in turn in breach of its fiduciary duties to the introduced investors because the introduced investors were not told of the exact split between the commission between the broker and the investment firm. So the payments to the broker were, according to the High Court, a secret commission. Well, that does not sound very secret to me, actually. <laughs> no, Carrie, not particularly secret, given that the investors knew that there was a split. And that's exactly what the Court of Appeal found when it went up to them. So they said, look, the investors knew that the broker was getting a commission, they didn't know the exact amount of the commission, but that's hardly a breach of a fiduciary duty. And that's what's novel about this application of the law in this area. That doesn't mean that such payments where the investors knew about it could never be secret. What this case turned on was the fact that the investors in this case were wealthy and experienced. And so they knew um, uh, the type of commission that the broker would have been getting. But you can imagine a case where, for instance, the investors were unsophisticated or where the split of the commissions was so disproportionate that it could have potentially influenced the broker in incorrect ways. And in those cases, it could have been seen as a secret commission. But according to the Court of Appeal, not here. We've got a banking litigation e-bulletin on this, and it's definitely worth a read because as we're seeing in practice, secret commissions is an issue that's coming up more and more in banking litigation cases. Brilliant. And then you have a, another case for us in this sort of area. I do. And it's sticking with the duties theme. But here's we're looking at a tortious duty. Um, and it's the Quince Care Duty of Care 
Uh, in this case, is Nigerian JP Morgan. And you can already see from my slightly puzzled expression that I'm going to ask you to remind everyone, but mainly me, just exactly what that Quince Care duty of care is. Yeah, it's quite an obscure one and quite a niche one, but it's been coming up more and more in, in recent cases. Uh, the court in the eponymous Quince Care case uh, defined the duty as one which requires that a banker must refrain from executing an order if and for as long as the banker is put on inquiry in the sense that he has reasonable grounds, although not necessarily proof, for believing that the order is an attempt to misappropriate the funds of the company. So this was a decision looking at whether the bank had successfully contracted out of the quince care duty, which is technically possible, although no um, case has actually decided that a bank has successfully contracted out. Um, And in this case, the court found that the express terms of a depository agreement between the bank and its customer did not successfully exclude the duty. In a nutshell, the express terms stated that there was no duty on the bank to inquire or investigate instructions. But the court said that these terms were simply making clear that there was no duty to inquire or investigate prior to the point at which the bank was put on inquiry. So the terms failed to include the quince care duty. Now, this could be significant for lots of deposit-taking institutions, which might have had standard form agreements which has a similar clause and hope that that might contract out of the duty. So it's worth taking a look at the relevant parts of the depository agreements and considering, in this case, whether there's um, a comparison to be made between the terms in Nigeria and JP Morgan. Yeah, perhaps time to update those standard terms. Kerry, you've got a, a couple of decisions in the world of, of eyeball, haven't you? Um, so looking at eyeball manipulation, and we have uh, to start us off a court of appeal case on implied representations uh, that were alleged to have been made by a Eurobor rate-setting bank. Um, that's sort of linking back to the decision last year in, in PAG and RBS. And you've chosen this for our, our deep dive this month, haven't we, Kay? Yeah, that's right. So for the deep dive this month, I've gone for Marme and NatWest, which is the second civil court trial judgment considering eyeball manipulation. The first, of course, being PAG and RBS, where we had the Court of Appeal judgment last year. So in Marme, the court dismissed claims that uh, the bank had made implied representations as to Euribor rate setting in the context of selling interest rate swaps. Uh, Very briefly on the facts of this case, um, Marme and the defendant banks had entered into interest rate swaps, uh, which were set by reference to Euribor. And then Marme alleged that RBS had negligently or fraudulently made representations regarding the integrity of the process of setting Euribor. And Marme alleged that it relied upon those representations when entering into the swaps. It said those representations should be implied, i.e. they weren't expressed, so implied from the circumstances and RBS's conduct. Um, Marme was seeking to rescind the swaps or claim damages, um, whereas the bank was seeking various declarations that they lawfully terminated the swaps and that Marme owed them significant sums. So the court identified a number of legal and factual difficulties with the claim, and I'll just highlight the main themes of those. So firstly, specific conduct. There's a requirement that specific conduct be identified from which any alleged representation is said to arise. But Marme, in fact, could identify no conduct other than RBS entering into and allegedly proposing 
their swaps to justify the implication of the representations sought. And the court said there really should be no watering down of this requirement. Um, secondly, certainty of representations. The court was really concerned here about the lack of certainty and associated lack of obviousness as to what was entailed in the representations. They were really quite woolly, fluffy representations that were alleged here. Um, and the court said any elasticity of possible meaning really will operate against the implication. And then the third theme really is a combination of these two and how they interact with one another. There is a relationship here between the conduct that's alleged and the nature of the representations. And the court said that the broader and more complex the alleged, rep alleged representations, the more active and specific the conduct must be to give rise to the implication. So summing up, the court held that RBS's conduct in going along with the swaps was sufficient for um, the implication of a much narrower representation, but not for the representations that were sought. Um, and that narrow representation was namely that RBS was not itself manipulating and did not intend to ma manipulate or attempt to manipulate your rival. Kerry, that sounds quite a lot like the implied representations the Court of Appeal found in the PAG and RBS case. Yeah, well. that's, yeah that's absolutely right, um, actually. They echo those na the narrow implied representation found in PAG. Just here it related to your rival manipulation, whereas obviously in PAG it was sterling LIBOR. And the odd thing about that case, if I recall correctly, is that the claimants didn't actually plead those narrow implied representations. The Court of Appeal in PAG did some freehand drafting on behalf of the claimants yeah. and reformulated them. Yeah, correct again. So um, here the narrow implied representation was not put forward by Marme in the action, just in the same way as in the PAG case. But in contrast to PAG, the court did not do any freehand drafting and reformulate the representations pleaded. Uh, what the court said on this aspect uh, actually was completely obiter in uh, Marme and therefore not binding um, because the, those representations hadn't been pleaded by Marme and then they weren't reformulated by the court. The court commented that the narrow implied representations were probably not pleaded by Marme itself because Marme recognised that it would be in no position to establish falsity and maybe that's why it didn't do the freehand drafting too. So therefore the court rejected the broader implied representations sought by Marme and the action failed. So again we have a banking litigation eBulletin covering this decision. And I'll just here quickly note um, another IVOR-related case, Cargill and Utam Galva Steels. Uh, very, very briefly, there was a contract term setting a default rate at one month LIBOR plus 12%, and this was held to be valid and enforceable. The High Court said there was no real prospect of showing it was a penalty clause, applying the Supreme Court's decision in MacDessey. It's always good for banks to have an interest case relating directly to the penalty question. And uh, this is a rare good news story related to LIBOR, so I thought worth flagging. I like the fact that I've learned that I've been calling it Eurobot. <laughs> Everyone calls it Eurobot. <laughs> I, I don't think there's a right There's no right That's so face it up. Actually, so just sort of changing tack, um, you've got a, a Supreme Court decision looking at loss of chance. So can you tell us about, about this one? Yes, and loss of chance is a topic close to my heart, having been up to the Court of Appeal on a on a similar case. And the, the leading decision on that is Allied Maples and Simmons and Simmons. Um, 
But this decision is similar in the sense that it also relates to a claim of solicitors' negligent advice. And it's the case of Perry and Rallies. The key issue that this deals with is the one that relates to causation in loss of chance claims. The solicitor gave allegedly negligent advice um, and the alleged lost opportunity by the claimants was the opportunity to bring legal proceedings. What the court, what the Supreme Court did in this case was emphatically restate the approach to causation in Allied Maples. And this is a, a bit of a dual approach. So where there's a loss of chance claim and the claimant themselves allege that they would have taken certain action, those actions um, will be assessed by the court on the balance of probabilities. So the claimant will have the burden to prove on the balance of probabilities that they would have taken the action they allege they they would have done. However, where the um, actions relate to those of a third party, that will be assessed on a loss of chance basis. So this can arise in a banking context where, for instance, a bank forecloses on an asset um, and the claimant alleges that they would have sold it to a third party had the um, foreclosure not happened. They will have to prove that they would have sold the asset on the balance of probabilities, but they'll have to prove that the third party would have purchased it and the price at which they would have purchased it on a loss of chance basis. And this can cause quite significant concerns to the defendants because the loss of chance um, basis is obviously easier to prove than a than the burden of, um, of balance of probabilities. And if you are facing this issue or you want to know more about it, there is a banking litigation e-bulletin on this. We'll put all those links in the in the show notes for all these e-bulletins. Um, well, fabulous. Thank you. Uh, that's it for this episode. And I hope you'll join us again next month when we're back. Uh, we may have the first of one of our special editions coming up, actually. So do stay tuned if that's uh, if that's the right phrase uh, subscribe in any case um you should definitely do that and don't forget about those links in the show notes to the e-bulletins and blog posts on some of these decisions it only remains for me to say thank you as ever to kerry for keeping us in the know this month and of course to Andrew for joining us as our guest for this episode thanks to you for listening and we'll see you next month thanks <laughs>